0: This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. I'm going to uh, ask a lot of questions. I've got a lot of questions that I look at the text that I had when I was studying it. And what I want to do tonight, before we take a look at this, is I want you to do something sometimes we don't normally do when we look at Scripture. I want you to try to put yourself into the story. In other words, I want you to imagine that what's happening here, that you're not just reading about it. Two thousand years after it happened, but you 're actually experiencing it along with the other disciples that are there in other words, imagine how you would feel imagine what you'd be thinking suppose you were on the boat with these guys and and you saw this figure on the beach and you drew the uh, the fish in and I mean what would you be feeling what how would you respond to that and then compare it to how they 're responding to that and then it raises some questions as uh, Maybe what are some of the motives here or why is it happening this way? And and what we're going to do is just kind of not only look at these first 14 verses in John 21 to see what they say, but we're also going to use these as a tool to help us learn how to maybe study the Scripture a little bit deeper to try to determine what principles there are here for us to learn. Understand this text is not deep doctrinally. This is not Romans 8 or 9. We have to just take verse by verse and phrase by phrase and mind the doctrinal truths in that. This is not the book of Hebrews. It's basically a narrative of an event that took place after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it's here for a reason, and there's some profound truths we can find here. So shall we do this? Let me pray. Father, once again, I ask you to open up your word to us, show us some things, teach us some things, change us like you never had before. Holy Spirit, we're not just inviting you, we're begging you to come in and, and change our heart. Take these words, take this event, this encounter, this experience that Jesus decided to reveal himself to the disciples with. And would you reveal more of Christ to us? In your name I pray. Amen. And I kind of subtitled this as Jesus basically revealing himself. And in John 21, it's, uh, it's kind of an odd placement because it appears that the gospel should have ended in John 20. If you look at the last couple verses of John 20, verse 30 and 31, it almost seems like there's a closure here, that uh, we're drawing it to a close. Jesus is raised from the dead. He, we've uh We've been in the uh, the room. We've met the disciples without Thomas. We've met the disciples with Thomas. Verse 28 says, Thomas goes, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus gives this kind of blessing and says, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and have not believed and have believed. And then all of a sudden we had this kind of summary caption here where it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs, and the word for signs here means the finger marks of God. In other words, they're things that God allowed to happen which point to Him. They're not just, they're like signs and wonders that point to something bigger than themselves. It says, and Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples. His first job was to convince the disciples that He was who He says He was, which are not written in this book. Well, that makes sense. You know, we find out in Paul's writings that Jesus appeared to a number of people, James for one, and... um and uh, over the 500 people at one time, but we don't have that recorded in the gospel accounts. And so there's many other things that Christ did, which are not recorded in the book, but nevertheless, the ones that John did write about, he wrote that they may believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you may have life in His name, and that appears like there's a closure here. And all of a sudden, we find that there's John 21. And so it's like there was, we've done all these signs and some of the signs are not recorded in the book, but the signs that are recorded, the ones we've already talked about are recorded so that you'll believe and have eternal life. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit decides to give us one more sign. And it's almost like an epilogue to the Gospel of John, just like the first 14 verses was a prologue. I don't know if you remember those. They basically talked about the pre-incarnate activity of Christ you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and with God, and all things were made through Him. And, I mean, it's, it's about who Jesus was before John the Baptist showed up and started preaching about Him. And now we have this chapter that deals with like a, the post-resurrection activity of Christ pointing to basically one major sign and then some dialogue that went with that. Now, the problem is, and I don't want to take a few minutes to talk about this, that uh, many people believe because of this, that this chapter John didn't write. that somebody else wrote it. And maybe it was somebody else in the church of Ephesus and got this letter from John and remembered this account. So they went ahead and decided to add this as an, an addendum to John's gospel, although there's no evidence at all to support that. But in our days of higher criticism, we find that um, claims like that are made all the time. Now let me explain to you what's happened in the last 200 years in Christendom. You know, when the Enlightenment hit, uh, I think, therefore I am, and you had the uh, the great philosophers, uh, Camus and Sartre, and, and people of that nature, which would talk about um, the intellect of man, and the intellect of man is the highest virtue, and so therefore we're raising man's intelligence even greater than faith. they became a natural battle between rational thought and faith, and the battleground, of course, became the church especially Christian universities and especially seminaries. And so what you had is you had a group of men now who decided that their intellect and their mental capabilities based on all their PhDs and their accredited institutions had the right to be able to erode faith by using human means which are known as form and source and redaction and textual criticism, to be able to determine what is true and not true in God's words. And so what they would do is they would take the Scripture and they would go through and they would begin analyzing it. And they would say things like, well, you know what? It appears that chapter uh, 20, verse 30 and 31 was a natural closing in the book of John. So therefore, based on that, we're assuming that chapter 21 was added by somebody else. And it would devalue the, the meaning of chapter 21, but it, or 31. But if you look at the end of 31, you will see verse 25 also has a closing. It says, And there were also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. And so man sits back and says, you know, based on my textual criticism or my form criticism, I'm going to go ahead and determine what is truly valid in the Word of God and what is not. This became really popular right after World War I in Germany where you had these group of German theologians, Bultmann de Balius, even Karl Barth and a few other people who would go by and do what they would call demythologizing the Gospels. And they would go through and they would try to determine what they felt was true, authentic original stuff in the Bible, and then what had been added or taken out or redacted by somebody else, hence redaction criticism. Or they would look at the literary style of the writer. Well, you know, in these chapters, the writer used this phrase, and then he changed it in this phrase, and so therefore, instead of him maturing in his writing ability, it must have been another person writing the gospel. I have been writing blogs for Years and my writing evolves and my writing changes and phrases that I really like to use in 2006, I really don't use much anymore and new phrases I use today, but according to them, it must be somebody else that um, that wrote the gospel. And so what happened was, in the mainline established churches, they only wanted to have pastors that graduated from traditional, accredited, well-known seminaries from Yale or Harvard or Vanderbilt or something of that nature. And in those seminaries was this hotbed of uh, German uh, theologian higher criticism, which did everything they could to destroy the Word of God. Even in my situation, when I went to seminary at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, I thought, naive as I was, I thought, wow, there's this whole school with like 3,000 men that are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I get a chance to study with them, and it's going to be fantastic. And I show up, this not long ago saved, really hungry for the Word of God guy, under 60 minutes interviewing the students, and they're wearing black armbands. And I had no idea what was going on. And the big fight was whether or not the staff had academic freedom to be able to teach what they wanted to teach, or whether they had to adhere to the Baptist faith and message since it was a Southern Baptist school. And the scandal, the scandal that broke out in the seminary when I was there was the fact that one New Testament professor, one, had the audacity to publicly say he believed Jesus really did the miracles because nobody else believed it. And they taught it that way because they all bought into this mindset. This stuff was really popular in the 60s and early 70s, and so churches began forming their own Bible schools, and they decided they're no longer going the um, education, Department of Education route, that they're going to have their own Bible schools where basically they taught not reading and writing and all that kind of, but they basically talked Bible and homeschool movement became popular then because of this attack that was going on. And the bottom line is the fact that that God can do anything he wants with his word. And what we have in front of us has stood the test of time. And even though it may seem like there's a closure in verse number 34 and 31, I'm sorry, of 30 and 31 of chapter 20, the fact is that it's like all of a sudden the Holy Spirit decided to add an addendum and give us one more incredible sign uh, in John chapter 21. And this chapter answers the questions that I've had and that you've had, and the main question they had, which is basically, who's going to take care of us now that Jesus is gone? For three and a half years, Jesus did everything. Uh, he fed them. He protected them. He wouldn't let them, um, get in trouble. He, um, you know, he, he sent them. He purposely sent them away when he was arrested. Let these go. I'm the one you're after and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so now that he's being ascended into heaven, who's going to take care of them? And it also brought closure to this incredibly sad story of Peter. All we know about Peter until John chapter 21 is that he denied the Lord, the Lord looked at him, he went away and wept bitterly, and that's it. And it really wasn't until John 21 that we have closure to that, and there's so much we can learn from this. These first 14 verses we're going to look at basically ask the first question, who's going to take care of the disciples after Jesus returns to the Father? And he demonstrates that to them by giving them a living illustration showing them exactly how he's going to take care of them. And of course, it was reminiscent of how he first called them in the very first place. If you remember the story in John, well, let's let's just read the first 14 verses of John 21. And then I want to read to you Luke 5. John 21, verse 1. It says, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas, the called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the <laughs> sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going to go with you also. So they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Then Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now I want you to turn to Luke chapter 5. And we're going to find almost a, a, a parallel account showing how Jesus first called the disciples himself. Luke chapter 5, verses 1-11. through So it was, as the multitudes pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets, because they had fished all night and it was now daytime. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, who was mending the, and washing the nets, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets were breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so were James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all, including two boats full of fish, which were about to sink, and followed him. Now that's the first calling of Peter and John. You can turn back to John 21 now. And this scene we're going to have unfold before us is almost reminiscent of that. This entire chapter can be divided up into basically <laughs> seven sections. So we're just going to look at the first one today our first couple today. One, we see the disciples serving in the power of the flesh. I have done that so many years of my life, I hate to confess it. Two, we're going to see how useless that is. It is absolutely useless to try to do the things of God in the flesh. Three, we see the Lord directing their service and telling them what to do and where to work. Four, we see the Lord graciously providing for them, even though they had been serving in the flesh and failing. Five, we see the Lord telling them that the only motivation for ministry, the only reason why we do that is love for Christ. And that's the whole, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know I do passage. Six, we see the Lord telling them that he is sovereign in life and in death. Uh, when he basically says, listen, if I will, John, to remain until I come, what is that to you? <laughs> Seven, we see the Lord leaving them with the prospect of his return, that they basically should be looking for him. And we have in the middle of this this incredible passage that teaches us about both human and divine loves. And I've I wrote about this and I've already taught about this, about the difference between agape and filio and the discussion that G- Jesus has with Simon. So let's look at the passage and see if we can break this down and find some truths that uh, have really revitalized uh, my own life. Now, Jesus had taken care of his disciples, and for the first time in three and a half years, he is basically saying, You're going to have to fend for yourself, I'm going to be gone. Yes, it's better for you that I go to the Father because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, don't count on me multiplying loaves and fishes. Don't count on me supernaturally working things out. I am going to be gone. You're going to have the Holy Spirit. You're going to have me living in you. You're going to have to learn to fend for yourself. Basically, the contrast here the same contrast that I have struggled with my entire Christian life is whether I go back to my former trade. I go back to my former way of living. I go back to the way that worked for me before Christ came into my life and, and changed me or that we continue in the ministry. He call, has called us to do with the same power and the same provision he provided when he was f- with us physically, when he's not going to be with us physically and it, It's a matter of faith. And for the disciples, It was a time to choose. It is also a time to choose for each one of us. We come to Christ and we trust him with everything. And then as we grow a little more mature in the Lord, we trust him with less, which makes no sense at all, that we decide that we're going to handle our own life our own way, just ask him to bless it. And we realize that as we try to serve him in the flesh, we can't until we come to the point to choose to trust his provision when we were young in the Lord even when we're older in the Lord. First couple verses deal with human weakness and, uh, and failure. I find this, uh, I just, this is so typical of me. It says, after these things, all the events that we've looked at, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, him appearing to his disciples twice, the story about the men, two men from Emmaus, who were telling their story when Jesus showed up in the room there. All of a sudden, Jesus showed himself to them again. Now the word show here means to make manifest or known what had been hidden. In other words, you didn't know me, it had been hidden from you, but I am choosing to reveal myself to you. I'm choosing to expose myself, make myself visible, or uh, visible to show myself openly. And so Jesus now shows himself in a visible, open, tangible way where before he had been hidden from them. After these things Jesus showed himself to them Again, we're going to find at the end of these verses that this is now the third time he's done this. And he shows himself to the disciples who are at the Sea of Tiberias. Why are they at the Sea of Tiberias? That's not where he told them to be. He told them to wait for him in Galilee. He told them to wait in Jerusalem. He gave them certain commands. There's from from Passover to Pentecost is 50 days. And we know the church prayed for 10 days before the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost. So there's a 40-day window here when Jesus had these post-resurrection appearances. And during that time, he told his disciples, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to be doing. But instead, they're at the Sea of Tiberias. Very typical of me. And in this way, he again, same word, showed himself. And then he starts listing the disciples that are there. And I find this list, Strange. Simon Peter, no problem. He's at the, usually at the beginning of every single list that Jesus or the, a gospel writer has. Thomas, called the twin, man, he's never. In the, the top three or four people. He's usually down seven or eight in the group. Nathanael, this is only the second time Nathanael's mentioned in the entire book of John. And all of a sudden he's mentioned here. The sons of Zebedee, they're mentioned usually right after Peter. You have Peter, James, John, and Andrew. That's the, the four, the inner circle here. And then you've got the second group and then the third group. But for some reason here in this group of disciples, you've you got people that are highlighted that's not normally highlighted. Then you have two other disciples that aren't even mentioned. Why? And who are those guys? And, and of course, the assumption is, is these people were Philip and Andrew, and I'll, I'll show you why people make that assumption in the beginning. But I'm looking at this and I'm going, why were Peter and Thomas listed first? Peter I've got you know, he's always the first, he's always the leader, he's, you know, it's always Peter, James, and John, or Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and, and all that kind of stuff. But, but why Thomas? I mean, Thomas is almost never mentioned unless he does something like doubt, or unless he goes, fine, you know, we'll go back to Jerusalem and we'll just die with him, like in, in uh, John chapter 11. Why in the world is he mentioned here first? Well, if you remember correctly, in John chapter 19 and John chapter 20, Peter and Thomas uh, were featured rather prominently. You had Peter, of course, that denied the Lord, and you had Thomas that doubted that he even showed up in the upper room to the other disciples. No, he was here. He manifested himself in front of us. Look, look, unless I see him, and unless I pay, place my finger in the na- and the spike wounds in his wrist, and, and my hand in the spear wound, I will not believe. And it's almost as if that when these guys had left, the, the Lord wants us to show who He's choosing to make up His church. First two people that are listed here the people who had the greatest faith failure in John chapter 20 and John chapter 19, and Jesus reveals Himself to them. I like that, don't you? Because it means that my faith failures and my faith sins, that God can even use me, even though, because he's using these guys. And then we had Nathaniel. Now, why in the world is Nathaniel mentioned? I mean, do do you remember the first time, the only other time Nathaniel's mentioned in the uh, book of John? It's in John chapter 1. And he's mentioned with Andrew, and he's mentioned with with Philip. And if you remember in John chapter 1, John the Baptist tells two of his disciples, you need to go and follow him. And then, and one of them is Andrew, and he finds his brother, uh, or Philip, and he finds his brother Nathaniel, and, and Jesus sees Nathaniel, and there's Peter, and there's Andrew. There, and all the people that are listed here, if these other two disciples are Andrew and Philip, are all reminiscent of what happened in John chapter 1. So you've got John chapter 1 is like this epilogue where these same characters we find in John chapter 21 (laughs) are still committed to Christ, which shows how the perseverance of these people stood firm. It means that none can pluck them out of his hand and no matter what life throws at you, these guys hung tight and hung strong. During the whole time, and I I can almost see the Holy Spirit's fingers in here beginning the book of John and ending the book of John with these same characters, can't you? Kind of amazing. Then we have um, verse 3. So Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're going with you. And so they went out and immediately got into the boat and that night caught nothing. I mean, I look at this verse and I see there's two key words here. There's immediately and there's nothing. They didn't ask for wisdom. They didn't pray about this. They didn't seek the advice of of other people. It's obviously not all the 11 that's going out with them plus the other entourage. It's just this group of people. Peter decides he's going back to his old way of life. The other guys say, you know what, let's just take a break. Let's take a vacation. Let's go back and make some money. Jesus is gone. We don't have any cash. We don't have any money. We don't have any, you know, when we needed to pay the, the poll tax, Jesus told Peter to throw a hook, a line and a hook into the water. And when a fish came out, there's a coin there that'll pay for his tax and mine. He's gone now. What are we supposed to do? And there's this natural tendency to go back to the old life. I mean, you know it's true. It happened in your life. You got saved. God, I'm yours. I'm yours. Whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, it's going to be great. And, and then maybe he started nudging you into an area you didn't want to go. And so you fell back into making decisions for your life. I decided I want to be this, but I'm going to be a Christian that, or I want to be this other profession, but I'll be a Christian, whatever this profession is, rather than us asking God what he wants us to do. This is exactly what happened to them. Immediately, they got into the boat. Doesn't say a boat, it's a definitive article boat, so it sounds like it's a boat maybe one of them had or had used to. And going out in the flesh, ministering the flesh in human weakness, asking God to bless it, they fished all day long and caught nothing. <coughs> nothing. Jesus had told them to wait into Jerusalem until they received the Holy Spirit and powerful on high, but they had a better idea. The last time Peter went fishing, of course, is what we find out in Luke chapter uh, 5. And Jesus said, don't do this anymore. There's nothing wrong with fishing in and of itself, but God had called Peter to do something else. This is not how you're going to spend the life building a fishing empire. Instead, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. So they went out in the flesh, just like I have done and probably you have done, And they're going out doing what seems the right thing to do. We're just going to go out and make a living, kind of go back to what feels comfortable. You know, we're going to kind of chill and and regroup here because we don't know where Jesus is and how long he's going to stay and what the plan is here. And so they went out and did what seemed right to them. Verse 4, But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. This Greek word, of course, is 1492 in Strong's, and it means to know cognitively. It means to recognize. It's not to know by experience. It's to say, I, uh, I know him, or I know that, or I can recall that fact. But for some reason, he stood on the shore, and the disciples did not recognize him. Or even if they did recognize him, they did not know it was Christ. And my question is, how can that possibly be? I mean, how can you not recognize someone that you have sworn your allegiance to and spent the last three and a half years 24 7 with? It's like, how would you not know it's your husband or your father or your child? You know, women have this unbelievable ability. I see this in, I saw this in my own wife, but I see it in Lindsay all the time, where there's this massive chaos of kids screaming. And she can pick out that one scream. Oh, that's Jackson. You know, and how can you tell? It's just this buzz of chaos. You know, I know that voice. How could they not know it was the Lord? And then we realize that after the resurrection, nobody recognized him. Nobody. Until he revealed himself to him. These two men are walking with him on the way to Emmaus. And this its a quiet away walk. They're, they're walking for hours. They stop to eat. He fixes a meal for them. It's only when he broke the bread and handed it to them that all of a sudden their eyes were open and Jesus allowed himself to be seen and allowed himself to reveal himself to them. And, and here they're sitting on the shore and for some reason their eyes were blinded and they didn't know it was Christ. And so Jesus does three things He asks them a question, which sometimes he will ask you, and then he'll give them a command. And then he sends them a blessing. He does that with Peter in verse number 15. He asked him a question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter's response: yes, Lord, you know I love you. The command, feed my sheep. I mean, he, he works the same way with these guys as he works with us all the time. Question, command based on our answer, and then a blessing. Usually the blessing comes from obedience. And so here's the question. Jesus said to them, now watch this word, children, patty on, children, have you any food? And they answered him, no. If you'll read a bunch of commentaries, what the commentaries will say that this is really kind of like, doesn't really mean children, it means like, sir or young man, or it's kind of a colloquial phrase where people just call out to another, that he's really not calling them children until you look the Greek word up. And what the Greek word means is a baby. It means an infant. It means one recently born. It doesn't mean, he's not saying little children, like he said earlier, which is a term of endearment. He's calling them children. Plus, they don't know who he is. They're, they're out there fishing. They've been fishing all night long. They're rugged and they're sweaty. And Peter probably has nothing on but a loincloth at that time. And they're pulling these nets in. They're frustrated. Nothing has come in. They see this man, a football field away, 200 cubits away. And they see him over there. And he calls out to them. And he calls them an infant, a child, one recently born. Petty on children, have you any food? And they answered, and of course, you can't pick the reflection up in the Greek. But they answered, "No, I can almost see it like this." No, God, who is this guy calling us a child? So I, you know, are the commentators right? Does, is there really another definition from this word? Does, does John use it differently in this passage than he does in other passages? So I just looked at in the Book of John, for example, when. Um, when he used this word, and, and how is it used? Is it used as this meaning sir, or, is, or does it mean children? He uses it in John 4, 49, where the nobleman said to her, Sir, come down before my child dies. It's a little kid, little maybe an older than an infant, but a little kid. We find the same word in John 16, 21. Jesus says, and a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hours come. But as soon as she has given birth to the infant, to the baby, to the patio, to the child, to the one just born, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So every time John used this phrase for children, it meant just this. Children. Have you any food? And they answered to him, no, children, gosh, children. Is it children in faith? Is it children in going back to the the ways that they thought were going to work? Is it children having to learn the same mistakes over and over again? Whereas an adult, hopefully we we don't make those same mistakes. And and then this idea of the fact, have you any food? Has there been any fruit from your labor? Have you accomplished anything from all your fleshly toil, being in a place I told you not to be, doing something without my explicit authority and calling? How's that going for you? Or as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working out for you? And then maybe they were reminiscent on what John recorded just a few chapters earlier when Jesus was talking about the vine and the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches, he said. He who abides, who rests, who stays connected, who makes his home and dwelling in me, and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Guys, you have been out toiling all night long, and you have caught nothing. So he gives them a command. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. You know, I uh, I didn't really know much about, I don't know anything about fishing. My, uh, my grandfather was a big fisherman. He was a bass fisherman, had the bass boat, and he would take it out there, and they would cast, and, and, and they would never let me go because after about 15 minutes, I'm taking the anchor, and I'm banging it on the side of the boat because I'm bored and you know, talking too much, and all the fish are being scared away. And, but that's all I knew about fishing is you went out in the middle of a lake, and you never caught any fish, and it was hot, and it was long, and it was boring. It's not, it wasn't until I went to Israel that I understood a little more about how this fishing went. And this was net fishing. And you only did it at night because if you cast the net out in the middle of the day and it lays on top of the water, do you know who can see the net? The fish. And the fish don't swim into a net. And so you have to catch them under the cloak of darkness. And, and so he's giving this really ridiculous command. A guy that just called them children who they don't recognize, who's just some stranger, a football field away. Imagine how small he would be, a football field away, yelling out to these veteran fishermen who have fished all night long and are exhausted and said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find what you know, we do that every other cast. We cast it on this side, and we reel it in, and then we cast it on that side. So you want us to cast it back on this side again? he didn't argue with him. For some reason, they were veteran fishermen, but there was something about the call. Maybe there was something reminiscent of Luke chapter 5. Maybe there was something vaguely familiar about the voice. Maybe the Lord was beginning to reveal himself to him, but nevertheless, being a football field away, they obeyed. Okay. Had they not obeyed, the blessing would have never come. You know, when Christ gives a command, as ridiculous as it seems, this guy's not even a fisherman, and I'm a fisherman. It's pointless for us to do this again, but nevertheless, I will give it one more shot. If you don't obey, even when it seems pointless and fruitless, my experience has been the blessing does not come, yet they obeyed. And then the blessing. First part of verse 6 says, So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude, or literally it means full, fill or fullness of fish. They threw it out there, and they weren't expecting, I don't know what they were expecting, maybe just fish for today to feed all of them and their families or or whoever's waiting on them back in the camp. But instead this fish, this, it was so massive that they they couldn't even pull it in. And here's where I fail the Lord most of the time. Because I marvel at the financial blessing. Wow! Look at this. This is great. Thank you, God. This is incredible. And we're real in and inefficient. Our needs are met. And my house payment is paid. And we can take the vacation. The medical bills are all taken care of. God, you've healed this illness. And we're all excited about that. And, and we forget that Maybe there's a greater blessing that we haven't even imagined. I know in my own life, sometimes I get so tied up with being satisfied with what the Lord gives me that I fail to seek His presence and His face, which is a far greater blessing than that. I mean, their needs were satisfied. We wasted, we wasted all night long fishing, and in one cast, it's better than we can possibly imagine. And instead of glorifying in that, which... I possibly some of you have a tendency of doing. The fact is that they were looking for something. Jesus wanted to give them a greater blessing. Not just what he gave them, not just his hand, but also his face. Therefore, as they're hauling the fish in, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and we know that is John, said to Peter, I want you to watch this, that every time, every time somebody says something to Peter, they use his spiritual name. And and again, this doesn't hold 100% true in Scripture. It holds about 90% true. That every time you see Peter acting like a really lost guy, they call him Simon. And every time you see Peter acting like a guy that can't really make up his mind, they call him Simon Peter. And every time you see Peter doing something spiritual or having an opportunity to do something spiritual, the Holy Spirit calls him Peter. It's not foolproof but about 90% of the time it seems like that theme runs through scripture. So John turns to Peter and tells him something spiritual. Obviously not the other disciples, but obviously John's eyes were open and since he was the first one to believe when he saw the grave closing in the opportun- in the empty tomb. He's the first one now to recognize it's Jesus. And he says to Peter, didn't make this big announcement to everybody. He says to Peter, it is the Lord. But now when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord. Wow. So I'm saying this to Peter expecting some sort of spiritual response. It is the Lord. But instead, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that the person who actually heard that is acting like the guy that's off again and on again with Jesus, Simon Peter. So now when Simon Peter heard that it was for the Lord, he didn't fall down on his knees and praise the Lord. He didn't tell the other disciples, let's give glory to Christ over here. He didn't yell out, thank you, Jesus, for your bountiful blessing. He didn't do any of that. What he did is he acted really impulsive, which Peter has a tendency of doing, and so do I. And he put on his outer garment, which means he was probably in his loincloth, he, for he had removed it and he plunged into the sea for a hundred yard swim. Now, I don't doubt Peter's exuberance. I don't doubt Peter's excitement. Oh, he says, Jesus, I just want to be with Jesus. And I've heard pastors preach this. So he dives into the water because he doesn't care about the fish. He doesn't care about the rest of the people in the boat. He doesn't care about the trappings of the old life. He wants to go be with Jesus. Yet the passage calls him Simon Peter. And when he gets to shore, he comes up to Christ. He falls on his knees before Jesus. And no, that doesn't happen either. Something transpires from the time he sees Christ and jumps into the water to be with Christ. And by the time he gets to the shore, why don't you put yourself in Peter's shoes here? Don't really know how we knew that John knew it was the Lord, but he did. It was revealed to him. And, and so then Peter jumped into the water. And as he was swimming to the Lord, I wonder what he was thinking. Because when he got to shore, what we don't see is what we would expect from a man that was so excited about seeing Jesus, he left everybody else behind and dove into the water to swim to Christ. What well, we would expect to see someone who comes up to Jesus and just excited about him being there. Wouldn't you think? Lord, you're here. Praise God. I missed you so much. And, you know, hey, guys, come on, lead the fish. Jesus. We don't see any of that. None of that. Now, if we don't see Peter say a thing. We see, we, we obviously know that Peter got to shore. The other disciples show up. They see, they see a fire, obviously Jesus. They see fish. They see bread. They don't even talk about Peter being there at all. And then all of a sudden when Jesus says to the disciples who are probably gathered around him at the fire, he says, hey, somebody bring me some of the fish you caught. Peter, and Peter alone we're going to look at, is over where the net is in the boat, dragging it in by himself. What's going on? What what is Peter thinking while he's swimming to Christ? Maybe it starts out with the first 20 yards. Just, I want to get to Jesus, man, I want to get to Jesus. And, gosh, what's Jesus going to say to me? What's Jesus going to think about me? I mean, I haven't been restored yet. We haven't had the Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? More than these, Simon, his carnal name. Yes, Lord, you know I do. Simon, Simon, Simon. You know, and is he going to, do you want to see me? Is, is he mad at me? Is he, maybe I made a mistake. Now what's going to happen when I get to shore and it's just going to be me and Jesus and not the best of the guys? I mean, do I apologize to him? And what do I do? Does he still love me? Does he still care about me? Because we had this account in the upper room in John chapter 20 where Jesus shows up miraculously and what we don't see is Peter running up and embracing him. I and mean, we don't Peter's name is not mentioned at all. We can almost I can almost picture him. Oh, it's it's you Jesus. <laughs> Nobody else knew what Peter did but Peter and Christ and maybe John, but but uh John obviously knew. But uh we see him maybe slinking in the shadows and and what started out as just incredible exuberance just to get to his lord, he all of a sudden began to doubt about how Jesus would receive him when he got there which means that Peter had a hard problem forgiving himself. I have a hard problem forgiving myself. I have no problem forgiving you. I have no problem asking God for forgiveness. And God gives me his forgiveness. And I ask you for forgiveness. And you may or may not forgive me, but let's assume that you do. And the relationship's restored. But I still beat myself up over it. I can't believe I did that. That was really just so stupid. Lord, I'm so sorry I did that. Did what? Did what? Well, you know what I did like six days ago. Don't you remember? Um, I'm trying not to, because I've already forgiven. Why are you bring it back up again? Can't you let go of it yourself? And I remember it was such a profound truth to me that the and I really struggle with forgiveness. I hold myself to such a high standard that if you mess up, it's all forgiven. God'll forgive you. You know, God's just a good, good God. If I mess up, not so much so, because I'm not supposed to mess up, because I just shouldn't do that. I knew better and And even though God says he forgives me, if I don't forgive myself, what he revealed to me about that, the arrogance in it, is I'm basically saying I have a higher standard of righteousness than God. Then God says, I'm forgiving you for your sins, Steve, and I basically tell God by my lack of forgiveness of myself, no, God, you're weak. I mean, you're a weenie. I mean, if you were really a God, if you were really smart like I am, you would make me pay. You would still be bitter towards me, but you're just weak and you're just easy. And and I'm not going to be like you. And so therefore, I'm going to refuse to forgive myself. Isn't that crazy? And I believe, and again, I'm, nobody knows, but this is my interpretation of this. I believe that Peter may have been having those kind of feelings and thoughts as he was as he was swimming to Jesus, because when we get to Jesus, we don't see Peter finishing with the same enthusiasm as he began when he jumped into the water. Then come the other disciples. But the other disciples came in the little boat, obviously a while later, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits or 100 yards. To me, that's far away from land, dragging the nets with fish which means they had a hard time pulling them into the, the boat. Not, they hadn't pulled all the fish into the boat. They were actually just dragging the nets in the boats to shore. So the boats would hit the shore and the fish would be attached to the nets that were, were being dragged. They'd be dragged up on the sand, partially in the water. And the amazing part was the nets weren't breaking. Then it says, as soon as they had come to land, they saw the fire of coals there, the fish laid on it, and bread, and no, Peter. doesn't say he, he doesn't say that he wasn't there, but it doesn't say that he was there. And I'm thinking if he was there, they would have been embracing Christ and he was helping Jesus and they were having their camaraderie together. It's just a great time. And Come on, guys. It's really the Lord. And they would have mentioned that, but they didn't. For some reason, the Holy Spirit wanted us to know that what they did see, maybe what they didn't see, they obviously approached where Jesus was. They approached where the fire was. They approached where the bread and the coals were. And Peter wasn't mentioned. And again, scripture doesn't say, but in a little while, we're going to find Jesus saying, somebody go get me some of the fish. And Peter pulls that net with 153 large fish, it says, by himself onto the shore. Now, if those are, if you've been to the Sea of Galilee, um, they have what's called St. Peter's Fish. They have a restaurant there, and basically they take these fish that are about this big, and they say it's the kind of fish that Peter caught, and they deep fry them with the heads on. You know, I don't know why they do that, but they deep fry them with the heads on, lay it on your plate, tails curled up like this. It's kind of like that scene from um, A Christmas Story where they had a duck, remember, and the wait anyway, Well, anyway, long story. Anyway, they had the tail curled up, and there's a head on it, and it tastes pretty good if you can... Don't matter, doesn't bother you looking at an eye socket of a fish, but they weigh about three or four pounds, these fish. And so let's assume they just weighed three pounds. It's 153 fish, it's 450 pounds of fish here that Peter's grabbing this net and he's bringing it by himself. Nobody helped him. The other disciples didn't go, you know, help. It wasn't like Peter was with the group and, and said, okay, it's almost as if, and again, maybe I'm reading into this, it's almost as if the disciples are around Jesus because there's the fire, the bread, and, uh, and Jesus. And when he says, somebody bring me the fish, Peter's probably already over there. He's already near the boat. He maybe had separated himself from the crowd because he had still failed to forgive himself. And he was thinking the worst of Christ, thinking Jesus was going to, dress him down for his moment of weakness. Look what happens. And Jesus said to them, all of them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. So Simon Peter, the carnal name, went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not broken. Nobody helped him. He gave a a command to everybody And Peter's the only one who did it. And it may be, again, it may be the fact that Peter was with the group and says, oh, it's okay, guys, you stay here and just worship the Lord because I've already worshiped the Lord while you were bringing the boat in. I'm going to go bring the fish in by myself. That is possible. But I almost see it like he's kind of distanced himself from the crowd, not sure how Jesus is going to respond to him. So he goes out and he drags, shows you how a strong man Peter must have been, drags this net with, this, with these fish on shore, counted 153 of them, and the scripture says it's large fish. So why was he so silent? And What do you think he was thinking? Man, I made a mistake. I've, um, I've gone back to my old life. These guys have come with me, and we've gone out fishing, and, and we've caught a lot of fish. I mean, I've still got the knack. I can still do this. I can turn a buck here. You know, I spent three and a half years following this rabbi, and now he's getting ready to, to ascend up into heaven. It's been, there's been high times and low times, and the lowest time happened when I denied I even knew him. And now I've gone back to my old life, and you know what? I can be a Christian and still be a fisherman. I can be a Christian, and 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 and, and God can bless me. I mean, look at this blessing we have here. Just all night long, we try to do it on our own, and cast on one side at his command, and look how he blessed Maybe, Maybe he's going to... Maybe he's not pleased with that. And we find out in the passages to follow that um, you know, he always says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these the boat, the nets, and the fish? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And feed my sheep. And call you to catch fish. I called you to be a fisher of men. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Again, this is one of those phrases. Nobody assumes this, but John puts it in here to tell us what they weren't thinking, which kind of means maybe they kind of were. And then it came to the conclusion that he really was him. I mean, I mean, there's no indication at all that they had any doubt that it was Jesus when they're on the boat and they come and see Jesus. But John tells us, yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew in their head cognitively that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. My question is, where did Jesus get the bread? The fire, coals. I mean, he obviously made the fire and the coals, but he may have had bread with him. He may have just miraculously created the bread. Maybe he's duplicating for them the loaves and fishes, where he fed the 5,000 and the 7,000. And John wants us to know that most of you are probably thinking, you know, maybe they don't know this is Jesus but they really did. I don't know. I don't know. Again, I'm maybe I'm reading into this but they seem so sure on the boat. John knew it was the Lord. John told Peter it's the Lord. Peter knew it was the Lord, jumped into the water and swam. John's there on the boat with that knowledge it's the Lord. I, what's happened to Peter? I just told Peter that is Jesus. So they jumped into the boat. But really, that's Jesus. Yes, it's Jesus. Peter believes it's Jesus. I believe it's Jesus. We all believe it's Jesus. Let's get this incredible miracle of fish. They struggle to the shore. They leave the nets, obviously, attached to the boat, halfway in the water and halfway not in the water. They go to where Jesus is is, and they see Him there with with breakfast fixed for them, yet they don't respond to Him. At least the Scripture doesn't indicate in, I don't know, like I would. Maybe like you would. They're seeing the Lord again in a post-resurrection appearance. I mean, what would you do if you had another chance to be with Jesus? What, What would you do? Would you Would you just kind of stand there? Would you? And again, all we know is what the scripture says, but there have been times when, you know, the first time that in Luke chapter 5 that Peter realized it was Christ, he fell on his knees before the Lord and said, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Do you remember? He was humble and he was broken. And here these guys now see that Jesus is really raising the dead. He didn't meet them twice in an upper room, come through the wall and come out. Now he's meeting them like, like he would expect to meet them, like in the olden days where he's just on the shore and they, they come to him and there's all these fish. We're going to have a great time. It's a wonderful breakfast. Thank you, Lord, that you're here. And, and I don't know the praise and adulation and the incredible things they would want to say to him. And we love you, Lord, and, and all that kind of stuff. And maybe they did but I would think that there would be some indication in Scripture that, that they were passionate about that. I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't see it here. How would you have acted if you knew it was Christ? What would you have done? I mean, suppose it was a, um, well, I'll we'll use Pam. Suppose it was a, uh, well, I, I won't use Pam. I'll use people like Pam. Have you ever seen those YouTube videos where um, the military man who's been deployed for a year comes home early and surprises his kids and his wife? You ever seen those? And all of a sudden, you know, you see, it's, it's the one that really moves me the most is this girl, probably a senior in high school, and she's wearing, it looks like, a volleyball outfit. And all you see from this part of the camera is the father walking in and she runs and just, boom, just embraces him and wraps her arms and legs around him. And, you know, and, and, oh yeah. Yeah. And I haven't seen you for just a year, you know, or six months. Or I was watching one earlier where they had these two little kids and they were going to let them throw the pitch in for some baseball game. And so the, the daughter's on the, on the pitcher's mound and she throws There's a catcher back there. She throws the ball and the son throws the ball. And But the catcher's their dad, you know? And, and so it's like, yeah, we want to celebrate these kids, you know, throwing the baseball, starting the game. And the father walks out and he takes his mask off. And the kids just bury their faces in their father's chest, weeping, just uncontrollable because, and it says, uh, I think this was his fourth deployment and he had been gone somewhere for four months four months and came back early, four months. Their Lord had died and had been raised from the dead. And we know that he's He's appeared to them twice already in, in the upper room, one time on the, in the evening of the resurrection and then a week later. And now all of a sudden he's there again. And what I don't feel from the text, maybe you do, is that kind of exuberance. It makes me it makes me wonder that you know, maybe maybe they did have a reservation, or maybe they were all kind of afraid, or maybe they were ashamed of the fact that they had gone fishing or and not obeyed him, or or maybe they just maybe they were just overwhelmed with this. But it makes me wonder what would I do? I mean, how would I respond? I mean, I hope I would respond like these kids respond when um when they you know, when they, when they see their dad who's been overseas. I love the videos where they got the little girls who's like in first or second grade and the father shows up in the classroom. We've seen all those, haven't father shows up in the classroom and the girl looks up and her eyes, you know, get all misty and she runs and her father grabs her and all you can hear is saying, I missed you, daddy, I missed you, daddy. And oh, that the love and, and these guys, this was their Lord. I mean, how would you have responded? I mean, We find there's still a whole lot of carnality here. The the disciples didn't understand that Jesus wasn't setting up an earthly kingdom at this time. We find that in Acts chapter 1. Peter still wants to kind of control things. And, and, well, let me tell you what's going to happen, Peter. Someday you're used to going the way you want to go, but someday somebody's going to take you in a way you don't want to go, and you're going to die. And then, oh yeah, okay, that's going to happen. What about John? What's going to happen to him? It's none of your business, Peter, what happens to John. If I want him alive until I return, what is that to you? You go and do what I've called you to do. You follow me. And so there's there's still a lot of carnality here. There's still a lot of misunderstanding. And it's an incredible opportunity to show their devotion to him, yet they didn't act like, Children whose fathers been gone for a while, they acted like children who had, didn't have a clue about what the kingdom of God was all about. And the encouragement to me is the fact that he still uses them. He still empowers them. He, he didn't cast them away and find something better than they were. He used them in spite of their failures and in spite of their carnality and turned the world totally upside down. Last verse. It says, now this is the third time recorded in John's gospel. Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. First time was in the room without Thomas. Then the room with Thomas. We find that in John chapter 20. And then, of course, this addendum here in John 21, which brings us to a couple lessons that we can gather from this. And these are some of the lessons I have. God has showed me through this. You may have other ones. What was Jesus trying to teach his disciples? Trying to teach his disciples that apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, I have, I have, um, I've spent my whole life, it seemed, serving the Lord and serving me. Serving the Lord and serving me. Even when I serve the Lord, I still kind of want to serve me. And yet I want, you know, God to get all the glory. Yet I still want to get all the rewards. I mean, even when it comes to um, blogging, You know, every time I'm blogging, I'm always thinking book. Well, why? Well, I don't know, because a book is about me. A blog is, you know, and and I I struggle with that. Every single time I I sit down to write every day, God, this has to be about you. It can't be about me. I I can't be thinking something that has Steve attached to it. This has to be something that has you attached to it. Because apart, apart from you, I can do nothing. So the Lord asked me, Steve, what areas of your life have you been living in your own strength or ministering in your own strength? How often do you decide to make a decision and ask God to bless it rather than asking God, what is your will in this matter? I mean, here it was. We fished all night long. We did everything man knew how to do. All my training, all my degrees, all my, um, my, my experience says, this is how you fish. All day long, all night long we fished. we caught nothing. Jesus says, you're missing the point. Follow my instructions. Cast off to the right side one more time. Okay, we'll do it your way, Lord. Boom, unbelievable blessing. Know what I mean? Same principle applies in every one of our lives. We decide what we want to do for a living. We never ask God what He wants us to do. We take these aptitude tests where, well, I, I score really high in this category and kind of low in this category. So obviously, God wants me to go into something that fits my aptitude based on a test better. I mean, it's just logical, it makes sense, but it may not be the way God works. I have found in my experience, especially in the experience of the church, if you'll study it over the last 2,000 years, God chooses people who aren't gifted in the areas that they need to be gifted in to serve him and turns them into to gifted people so that only he can get the glory from that. You know, if, the, if Tony Robbins decided, anybody know who Tony Robbins is? Big motivational speaker. If Tony Robbins decided that he wanted to be a preacher... He'd be an incredible preacher. He'd have a huge church because that's just the kind of guy Tony Robbins is. He attracts people with his personality and his stories. And it's just, a, it's just a change of focus from getting rich and being feeling good about yourself to preaching about Christ. Ain't no big deal. God doesn't get a whole lot of glory in that. But you find somebody that can't even look you in the eye when they want to talk to you or butchers the language and mispronounces all the words and is so shy they can't do anything. And when they surrender to Christ and they stand up to preach and all of a sudden God does something incredible in their life, you know who's behind that. That's Jesus. I mean, that's the Holy Spirit who empowers them. Steve, and for you, what areas have you failed to surrender to Him? Well, I've surrendered to you, God, all the stuff that really doesn't matter to me. Because that's easy to do. But I really struggle with the stuff that does matter to me. Um, stuff that deals with my reputation and my rights and my wants and my desires. And my, 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 my. You probably struggle with the same thing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Or to piggyback on what Pam said, what idols are you still worshiping? All right, Steve. Here's what they learned. What have you learned What are you prepared to do about it? So I just want to leave you with that. There are principles here. There's truths here that probably affect every one of our lives in certain ways. And if we really believe what Christ says, true happiness comes from abiding in him, resting in him, being part of his vine. We're just a branch, part of the vine. He is the vine. He is fruit, branch, vine, root, all. We are just a part of his vine. But the part of the vine we are is the part that he allows us to bear his fruit. Can't bear his fruit without him. Can't do anything without him. And the key to the abundant life in Christ is to bear much fruit. And I've learned the hard way, and they're still learning, that that comes from surrender. Amen? Let me pray.